Welcome to the second Sunday of Lent, everyone. All right. That's probably a safer way for us to count. Yeah. Instead of like, <laughs> this is episode number 11-ish. <laughs> How was your uh, last Sunday homily? I got to tell you, man, it was not good. <laughs> no? It was not good at all. It was a 35-minute romp <sighs> through just non sequiturs and tangents and it was very painful to listen to yeah it was not it was not very good and i think partly is like after having thought about this last week i was very excited to like think about how someone else would go about it and the priest just decided to talk about many many things but the one thing that i took away from it was like four ways to avoid temptation and <laughs> it was like yeah. cool <laughs> Yeah, no thanks. If the homily is longer than the Eucharistic prayer, we've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, Mine was pretty good. Our pastor is now really big on having short homilies for all the preachers at the, at the parish. His homily, he did something interesting. He looked at the temptations in context with Jesus's baptism. Hmm. So we often go through our lives thinking of that we're walking up the mountain when baptism is really that moment when we're changed and so we're not working toward through these temptations for that transformation that's already taken place this is what happens afterwards so this is how we live out the rest of our life after this monumental earthquake that saint paul would write about and so he really focused on how do we look at these temptations in context of this new life in christ which i thought was pretty cool that's great yeah, I think that's interesting to take those ideas of the temptation in the desert with the baptism. Sometimes we have to separate them, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, looking at this week, carrying on our story, uh, we've got the transfiguration in Luke. And when I was looking at it, you know, one thing, this is such a familiar story. And sometimes it gets drawn out into like transfiguring our own lives or allowing Jesus to transfigure our lives and I think there could be some value in that. But where I would want to take it if I were preaching on it is to think about Peter's reaction. So Peter is on the top of the mountain with Jesus and James and John, and they're sitting there and they witness this kind of council meeting between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And they also hear this voice that says, this is my son, listen to him, which mimics what we saw in the baptism Peter's reaction is, we should stay here, that let me build tents, similar to how the Jewish people would build these tents on great feasts to house the Holy of Holies or the tabernacles. And so a way of showing that this is a great moment is uh, by saying, let's stay here in this holy space. What Peter doesn't realize is that the kind of Messiah that Jesus is is the Messiah who must suffer and die for the sins of the world. This is a very, very different kind of Messiah. Jesus is at once raised up in the air in this glorious light, and at the same time, the man who chooses to walk down the mountain closer and closer to Jerusalem and toward his death. And I think that Peter's confusion, which we can't blame on him because this is all he's ever known. Peter's misunderstanding of just who Jesus is is very similar to my own misunderstanding of just who Jesus is. Very often, 
I think I've got it right. I think this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has to tell us. This is exactly how he would say it and do it and all that. But really, every time I make a statement like that, I've limited Jesus in some way. Every time I make, try to make a statement to pin him down, he's elusive. And so during Lent, I think that we could focus on this relationship between Jesus and Peter. As we follow Jesus towards Jerusalem, we're also following Peter. And as Peter gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, he's realizing that maybe I don't really know this man. Maybe I thought I had it figured out who he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was going to do all these great things. And yet here he is not defending himself. Here he is offering himself over to die on a cross. What kind of Messiah is that? So I think we see this very, very interesting relationship at play. And it's something that we're invited to follow along with through the passion narrative and as we get closer and closer to Holy Week. Yeah, I like that. I was just going to say that one thing that strikes me as you're talking, I, I didn't focus on Peter so much. And so I am thinking, uh, as you were discussing this, how would I have seen this if I was focusing on Peter? Um, and I think one of the things that strikes me is that you're right. All the different times he tries to talk to Jesus about his expectation of what the Messiah should be, he gets it wrong. But the thing that stays constant is that Jesus is always the person he's speaking to. So uh-huh. there's there's something ironic there that like, you know, he tells Jesus that surely you will not die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says to Jesus, we should stay here. And he says, you are an idiot. We're not going to stay here. And then, you know, at the denials, it's about it's all about Jesus. So there's an irony going on, too, because like, who is this man? Who is God? Who is he? Well, he's always correcting Peter. So it's not just that we have a that Peter has a wrong understanding, but it's also that Jesus, who is God, is constantly educating him and being kind of gentle and forceful with him, correcting his false understanding of who God is. You know, so it's not just a reflection on like, Peter's ignorance. It's also a reflection on Jesus's shepherding him into the truth of who he is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's, yeah, that's why Peter is such a good mirror for us is because, yeah, it's not all about him being wrong. Like at some point, I mean, he gives this great declaration, you are the Messiah, which is complete. I mean, it's Jesus at that time considers it a gift that it's been revealed to him that this was a great truth. But then Peter's understanding of what does Messiah really mean is where it gets confused. And I think for us, it also gets confused. Like, what does Messiah really mean? It's this constant, constant coming back and, and re-education that Jesus is trying to do. How would you try to, could you try to connect it with the other readings if you were to stick with Peter? So I, I was really struck when you, when you started talking about this because I'd never really made that connection before, and I think it really does fit with what Abram is going through, because God is calling him to an unknown place to have countless descendants. He doesn't know what's going to come. He doesn't know all of the things that will happen. All he knows is that God has asked him to do this. There's a real connection there in that Peter is always looking to Jesus, always following Jesus. He says dumb stuff a lot, and he kind of turns away often. But even then, he's still looking towards Jesus going off into the unknown, into the promised land, trying to find his way. Mm -hmm. 
I think uh, going back to your question, Louis, about the other readings, the second reading also maybe can fit in here a little bit. So there, there was a line in the second reading that I found funny at the end, which is the very last line. He uses the phrase, in this way. And I was like, wait a minute, in what way? Like, I, didn't under, <laughs> I didn't understand the reading, I guess. And I was like, in what way are you referring? And I think it refers back to the very first line, which is, join with others in being imitators of me and observe those who thus conduct themselves. And in this way, stand firm in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I mean, bracketing for a moment that Paul is putting himself on this pedestal of, yeah. <laughs> of, of like, you know, imitate me, you know. He also includes others, you know, others who conduct themselves accordingly. And Peter fits right in. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's a fool and you will be a fool too. But notice that he's a fool that's being educated slowly, gently, led by the Lord to become ultimately transformed into this great evangelist and this great, you know, Christian. You know, so conduct yourselves like him or like Paul and stand firm in Christ. When I read that, you know, be imitators, I was thinking of, the witnesses of all the saints that we have to rely on for how we learn how to be holy. Yes, we are imitators of Christ, but really that witness is made known to us over and over and over again through these holy men and women throughout history. So when I think of someone like Mother Teresa or Dorothy Day or Edith Stein or Maximilian Kolbe, like they all witness in a very different way, and yet we still call it holiness. Mm-hmm. And I think that implied in that holiness is is a willingness to say, like, I don't 100% know everything about this Jesus that I'm following, but I'm willing to pursue that relationship over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's the relationship that calls them. It's not principles necessarily. I wonder, uh, as we're looking at these readings and if, as we're thinking about how Jesus's identity is changing throughout the scriptures coming up to the crucifixion. I wonder if we can ask the question or begin asking the question, what is at stake for Jesus's identity today? You know, what do we get wrong today? And what do we get right today? And I think very often, like today or in these readings in Peter, we see someone trying to understand Jesus and sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong. And I wonder if we see that at play in our world today in our own understanding of Jesus. Yeah, I think uh, I think so. Um, you know, I think oftentimes we make we make an idol of an of a non Jesus, a Jesus that's only maybe a, a partial aspect of the gospel. You know, I love all of the the ritual liturgical call to holiness, but I don't want to touch the poor. Or I love the poor, but I never pray or whatever, like compartmentalizing the gospel. I think based on the gospel, Louis, to answer your question, one of the things that I think about that is very tempting in terms of misunderstanding or not acknowledging who Jesus is, there's a line that he said that Luke wrote when in the conversation with Moses and Elijah, there was was an appearance in glory as they spoke about his exodus. And how he was so struck by that because clearly the language of exodus reminds us of Moses. But what is the exodus that is his exodus well, I mean, it's the Paschal mystery, right? It's the, the cross, you know, it's the harrowing of hell and the liberation from death and captivity. But, but glory is connected to that. So glory and exodus are together. And I think maybe one of the ways that I find myself tempted to make an idol of a, of a, of a partial aspect of Christ is to focus either on glory or on the cross and not on both. 
you know, Jesus is resurrected. We, there's no more suffering. There's no more pain. So focus on glory. Or on the opposite, there is no hope. There is only despair. There is only suffering. And there's never any glory. I think that's one way that I, I can trivialize the identity of Jesus today is to take one or the other, Good Friday or Easter Sunday, but not hold the tension of both. Yeah, we follow we fall into exactly what Peter fell into. We want to hold it in just one thing. Say, oh, let's here it is. Let's stay here. And Jesus says, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not that's not what we're about. I like that. Yeah, that in some ways you have to be able to hold up the transfigured Christ whose father announces this is my son, trust in him. And at the same time, the silent Jesus hanging on the cross. Mm. That you have to be willing to live with both of those. And I think that's like, that is where art is born. That is where beauty comes from, these contradictions. That's why we're still talking about this, I think, is <laughs> mm-hmm. because of this this impossible contradiction in the one person. And somehow he's able to hold it all together. Hmm. I'm taking this class right now on mystical theology from the Middle Ages, and all of the mystics in the Middle Ages were obsessed, not with contradiction, but with paradox. The word paradox is used most often. And our teacher says something very interesting, is that when you have contraries, not contradictories, but contraries, things that don't, don't go together, and you hold them as closely as possible together, there can be an emergent new thing that is signified. And his example was, on a piano, when you have black keys and white keys that are right next to each other, those are a half tone away. In order to listen for the quarter tone, you trill between both. And what emerges in the void is in your ear, you start to fill in the gap and hear the quarter tone. Because you set, a, you set next to each other paradox, these paradoxical pieces that then reveal something that is transcendent, that you wouldn't hear with your natural hearing. And I thought that was a very beautiful way of looking at the gospel. Like Jesus, the glorified Christ, Jesus, the broken, crucified one, those don't go together. They're, they're contraries. But put, hold them in tension next to each other, and what emerges is the face of God. That's your whole homily right there. <laughs> Steal that. I like it. <laughs> yeah, and you could even bring that back up when we start talking about the lion that lays with the lamb. Yeah. It's a, it's a paradox, right? And there's, there's just something really beautiful in that paradox. And I think probably what's going on with Peter is that Peter is very uncomfortable with paradox. He needs an answer. Like paradox needs to be resolved. Well, yeah. In Jesus's own predictions of his death, Peter is the one that's like, well, no, you can't, you know, that's impossible because if you're the Messiah or you're the Christ, then how, how could you say that you'll be shamed in this way? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and how relevant is that today? You know, when we are so obsessed with having the answer immediately and having all things at our fingertips at all times to have a clear, clean-cut answer tied up in a nice little bow. Right, just Google it. Yeah, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching or what God is teaching us throughout throughout the ages. Right, right. But to to rest in that tension of unknowing but it's not the unknowing of ignorance. It's the, like, it's the awe before a mystery where it's like, I don't know. And there's a paradox. Yeah. I don't know. I find that temptation often of wanting to resolve all of the paradoxes. Could mm-hmm. this unknowing be contained in some sort of a cloud, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> a cloud of unknowing? Mm-hmm. If you will. <laughs> wow. All right. Any, uh, any final thoughts we've got floating around out there? Well, I'm wondering, um, Louis, 
could you connect us back to Lent a little bit? Like, what? How do you see this being second Sunday of Lent? You know, how would you, if you were to end the homily with a question about like, and in this Lent, dot dot dot. Uh huh. Well, I think that in in this Lent, uh, <laughs> I think some of it, if I were to push it into Lent, some of it has to do with the humility of saying, I don't know. You know, like the humility of saying that I am made in God's image. God is not made in my image. And if God is not made in my image, then I'm going to be wrong sometimes about what God actually is. And that doesn't mean give up. That doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means I've got to continue on this path towards right relationship with him. And so the whole enterprise of Lent is to consider where am I with my relationship with God and how do I continue on this path? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that there there is a connection there just in the, the humility piece of saying, I have a lot more work to do and I'm willing to put in the effort. Mm. And that God is laboring with you this Lent, right? To mm-hmm. like remember that idea of Peter being taught by Christ of who he is. You know, going back to what I mentioned at the beginning, looking at the temptation in context of the baptism, I've really been struck that the transfiguration is really kind of a miraculous thing that we that we would expect to happen after the resurrection. I mean, it's this glorified body, so that is probably what they saw. But this idea that we're not waiting for that down the line is really sticking with me. That these are things that we've got in our lives that began with our baptism and that continue throughout our experiences of each other and with God. So really, I think getting back to this idea that Lent is a time to to kind of revisit some of these things, but we're not starting from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like we're starting from an incredibly graced time in our lives, specifically after baptism. <laughs> uh, we are these new creations, and now we're figuring out, like Peter, how to achieve that ultimate goal. Good work, everyone. All right. That's fun. <laughs> I look forward to hearing from you again next week. Sounds good, man. Thanks for All leading. Right. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye now.